Lord, we praise you for all the gifts that you give to us. And we ask that you would renew our hearts and transform them. That they may ask those things and do those things which are in accordance with thy will. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. What does it mean to take up your cross and follow Jesus? What does that mean? This morning's text cover multiple, uh, multiple things. We're going to talk about that, particularly in regard to unanswered prayers and transformed hearts and the necessity of Christ's sacrifice. We've got some meaty passages this morning. And so we're going to start out with Jeremiah. So open with me, if you would, to Jeremiah chapter 15. For those of you that don't remember, or it's been a while since you've been in the book of Jeremiah, he's one of the prophets. And Jeremiah is a prophet who is called to speak God's word to God's chosen people during a very difficult time. Jeremiah is called to speak to the people of Jerusalem, the capital king of the kingdom of Judah, the southern kingdom, under King Josiah's reign. And his calling, in that calling, God tells him that he's going to be a failure. Well, not quite. God tells him that no one's going to listen to him. That he will speak the word of God's judgment and call God's people to repentance and people will not listen. So he has a difficult task. We follow Jeremiah through that ministry, through that preaching, throughout his book. And as we look at the text of Jeremiah today, we see a man who feels alone and betrayed. Alone, solitary in his adherence to his faithfulness to God, and betrayed at one point in this text because he thinks that God has abandoned him. Or at least he's questioning that. Jeremiah has good cause for this. He calls God's people over 100 times to turn from their ways, to forsake their idolatry and wickedness, and to turn to Him. And yet, they are faithless. In chapter 2, God uses the imagery for Israel that's used throughout the prophets talking about His chosen people as a bride and God as the groom. But she is a faithless bride. She, as the prophet Amos says, plays the whore over and over again, going after other gods, going after anything but her husband. She's an adulteress. How is she cheated on God? Putting her faith in idols. She's trusted in other gods, making offerings to them, sometimes sacrificing her own children to them. She's not been true to God. She's broken the covenant, and yet God has maintained His side of the covenant. And it's clear that Jeremiah is frustrated with God to be put in such a position. Look with me at verse 18 of chapter 15 in today's reading. Look what he says. We'll come back to this several times. 
Why is my pain increasing? My wound incurable, refusing to be healed. Will you be, will you be to me like a deceitful brook? Like waters that fail? Do you see his asking God and his suffering? Have you abandoned me? Do you not care? This is intensely personal to Jeremiah. Just five verses earlier in this same chapter, and if you have your Bibles, you can look earlier, which we're going to do a little bit in this sermon. We see what Jeremiah, his, the depth of his lament. Look at, look at verse 10 of chapter 15. He says, Woe is me, my mother, that you bore me, a man of strife and contention in the whole land. Woe is me, my mother, that you bore me, a man of strife and contention in the whole land. He pities the very fact that he was born. He laments that. Just before today's passage, we find out why. Why is he feeling this way? Well, he's been intercessing for God's people. He has been intercessing for God's people. What does it mean to intercede? It's been interceding is a better way of saying it. What does it mean to intercede? What does, what's Jeremiah doing at the end of chapter 14? I'll read just a section for you. This is verse 20. We acknowledge our wickedness, O Lord, says Jeremiah, and the iniquity of our fathers, for we have sinned against you. Do not spurn us for your name's sake. Do not dishonor your glorious throne. Remember and do not break your covenant with us. What's he doing? Yeah, he's pleading on behalf of, and that's what it means to intercede, right? When you intercede, it's a specific type of prayer. When we, when we hear intercessions, we're hearing groups of those prayers. They're prayers not on behalf of ourselves, but on behalf of somebody else, right? So we're praying on someone else's behalf. Here we see Jeremiah praying on behalf of a whole people. And yet God will not answer his prayer. At least not as he sees it. Why? Dr. Philip Ryken, pastor and scholar and former president of Wheaton, has several ideas, which I think are good. He, as he says that Jeremiah sees it, God isn't answering his prayers in three different ways. God's not answering his prayers of intercession. Jeremiah intercedes on behalf of Israel throughout the whole last chapter, begging God to relent. And God says, I will not relent. God sends Jeremiah sufferings that he doesn't deserve by being persecuted and reproached in verses 15 and 10, which we saw, which we saw today. And God does not reward Jeremiah for his faithfulness in verses 16 through 18. Let me read that to you since we haven't read that yet. Besides our reading. We see, God, he says, your words were, this is Jeremiah speaking, your words were found and I ate them. And your words became to me a joy and a delight of my heart. For I am called by your name, O Lord, God of hosts. I did not sit in the company of revelers, nor did I rejoice. I sat alone because your hand was upon me. For you had filled me with indignation. 
Why is my pain unceasing, my wound incurable, refusing to be healed? What does Jeremiah expect? He expects reward for his faithfulness, and yet he gets suffering. Jeremiah is crying out to God, and God will not answer his prayers the way that he wishes. What are we to make of this? The wages of sin are death. Like so many things in Jeremiah, this too is a lesson for God's people. We read the wages of sin are death in Romans 6.23 and Israel's wickedness deserves punishment no matter what Jeremiah says or does. No matter how Jeremiah intercesses for them, God does not relent. God does relent sometimes in the Old Testament. We see that sometimes He stays His wrath for His own purposes. Sometimes He doesn't visit judgment upon His people. But sometimes he does, and in this case, he does. God himself tells Jeremiah this in chapter 15, verse 2, where we read this. And when they ask you, where shall we go, you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord, those who are for pestilence to pestilence, and those who are for the sword to the sword, and those who are for famine to famine, and those who are for captivity to captivity. I will appoint over them four kinds of destroyers, declares the Lord, the sword to kill, the dogs to tear, the birds of the air, and the beasts of the earth to devour and destroy. And I will make them a horror to the kingdoms of the earth because of what Manasseh, the son of Hezekiah, king of Judah, did in Jerusalem." The Lord will not relent. God speaks to the Old Testament people this way, through Jeremiah, and to Jeremiah this way, because this is the natural state of things without Christ. St. Paul speaks to this too. Romans 1.18 we read, that the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godless and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. He says the same thing to the Ephesian church. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind." You see, that's the de facto position, not just of God's people, but of all mankind, to be children of wrath. Children of wrath because of our rebellion and disobedience. But ultimately, God goes beyond sending lawgivers and prophets to His people. The reason He does this is that Moses, Samuel, and Jeremiah here could all pray and intercede for Israel, but to no avail. Pray as they might, God's wrath could not be subsided and He could not relent from it because of His justice. And God would put off His wrath again and again, and He often does, but intercession 
couldn't change the fundamental state of things. Do you see, God's people don't need just an intercessor. They need a sacrifice. They need someone who can take the punishment, who can take the wrath. Ultimately, God had to send His Son, not a prophet, as a perfect sacrifice, not just for Israel's sins, but for the sins of the world. This is why Jesus rebukes Peter so harshly. Have you ever wondered at that? I I can tell you, you know, I've heard this gospel read time and time again, and I often wondered about it. Why is God so rough with Peter? He's all he just had this great thing revealed to him that Jesus says no flesh has revealed to him. That was the text last week, right? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then this week he follows it up by saying that Jesus should not be <clears throat> taken to die, to be killed and raised on the third day. Look at verse 22. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. That is Jesus. This is Matthew 16 saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he, that is Jesus, turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. Why is Jesus so brutal in his response to Peter? Jesus sees in Peter's confused statement not just a mistake, but Satan himself. Why? Because Jesus knows that mankind doesn't need just an intercessor. Mankind needs a Savior. Mankind needs a sacrifice. And without Jesus going to the cross, without Jesus dying, without Jesus being buried and rising again, there would be no salvation. Without that, there can be no salvation. Jesus knows that. And so Jesus knows God's plan. Look what Jesus says next. This is also verse 23, but the latter half of it. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Jesus is setting in his mind, has in his mind the things of God, not the things of man. Jesus has in his mind the plan of salvation, not the plan of Peter. You know, if you follow Peter all the way to the cross, he's trying to thwart Jesus being taken, seemingly out of love. Who is it that cuts off the servant's ear in the Garden of Gethsemane? Peter. Who is it that is in the outer courtyard before he betrays Jesus? Looking on, it's Peter. He just does not have his mind on the things of God. As the Son of God, Jesus knows what he has to do. He has to be that atoning sacrifice for all Israel and mankind. For everyone who rebelled under Moses. For those who pursued other gods under Jeremiah's preaching. And actually, for Jeremiah himself. 
But you see, that's what Jeremiah doesn't understand. That he himself needs an intercessor in Jesus. Let's not be too hard on them. For Jeremiah and Peter, for Christians in the church, past and present, the same is true for us. And it ought to pause, give us pause and some self-awareness. Another great figure that I admire is the late Bishop J.C. Ryle, who was a 19th century bishop of Liverpool and scholar. And he sees in this passage two lessons for the church. The first is that there may be much spiritual ignorance even in a true disciple of Christ. There may be much spiritual ignorance even in a true disciple of Christ. What's he mean? That we can follow Jesus and still be spiritually ignorant, still not see what God's plan is, not see what's going on, be frustrated, just like Jeremiah. Christians, however, need to be humble. We need to make sure our expectations are in God, and not in our solutions. What do I mean by this? Very simply, God doesn't always answer prayers the way we want Him to. We can ask, and He wants us to ask, but His answers are not always our answers. And sometimes in our ignorance, we don't even know what's best for us. When we pray for people, we should ask for good things. But ultimately, our confidence has to be in trusting God's goodness to do what is best. That's how we need to view the situation and the effectiveness of what we ask. Jeremiah is not wrong, notice, in praying for Israel's repentance or interceding for her. He's not wrong in asking for God's mercy, but God does not grant mercy because that's not what's best for his people just as he does not listen to Peter's objection that he should not go to the cross. And thank God that he doesn't. Spiritual ignorance is something that we should attempt to remedy with learning and reading God's word and listening and trying to see the bigger picture. And yet, ultimately, sometimes we can't see that larger picture. If you go back and notice the end of the Jeremiah reading, God actually does answer Jeremiah in one way. Look what he says. Verse 19, Therefore thus says the Lord, If you return, I will restore you, and you shall stand before me. If you utter what is precious, and not that is worthless, what is worthless, you shall be as my mouth. They shall turn to you, but you shall not turn to them. And I will make you to this people, a fortified wall of bronze. They will fight against you, but they shall not prevail over you. For I am with you, and notice this, to save you and deliver you, declares the Lord. I will deliver you out of the hand of the wicked and redeem you from the grasp of the ruthless. Do you see Jesus' salvation in those last several verses? It's easy for us to see be really hard for Jeremiah to see. But what could he do? He could trust in the goodness of God. Bishop J.C. Ryle's second point is that there is no doctrine so deeply important as the doctrine of Christ's atoning death. 
There's no doctrine so deeply important as the doctrine of Christ's atoning death. Jesus' atoning death sits at the very core of Christianity. There's no doctrine as important because without Jesus' death, there can be no salvation. Jesus' death on the cross is the heart of the matter, both in what it accomplished and has accomplished and in what it will accomplish as we follow him. Look with me at Matthew 16:24 at the, the gospel lesson again. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? So what does it mean to deny yourself? to take up your cross, and to follow him. Well, St. Paul puts forward an idea. No doubt, thinking of this passage and thinking of the cross and Christ on the cross, he writes to the Roman church about what he thinks on this. Look at the New Testament lesson, Romans chapter 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, says St. Paul, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. What does it mean to walk in the way of the cross, to deny oneself? According to Paul, it means to be a living sacrifice to God. Now think about that for a minute. What's a living sacrifice to God? What's a living sacrifice to God? It means that we are constrained. That we are constantly pouring ourselves out to God. That everything in, that we say, that we think, that we do, should be for God. Whereas Jesus dies on the cross for us, St. Paul says we are to live on the cross for him, you see. Well, what does that look like? That seems like a pretty high task, doesn't it? St. Paul goes on. He says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Let's stop there for a moment. So what does it mean to be a living sacrifice? Well, according to St. Paul, number one, it means to be renewed in our mind to be transformed, we see there in verse 2. You know, the word transformed there is a Greek word, as is most of the New Testament. It's the word metamorpho. metamorpho. Does that sound like an English word to you? Metamorphosis. Metamorphosis. The word here, to be transformed, is the same word that St. Matthew uses to talk about Jesus being trans, 
transfigured in Matthew chapter 16. So just as at the transfiguration, where Jesus goes up the mountain and his face shines like the sun, right? His glory, his glory shines forth. Just as that happens to Jesus, the Son of God, so St. Paul here uses that same word to describe the changing of our minds. To be metamorphosized. To morph into something else. Something better. Something glorious. This past, uh, yesterday actually, I was at the funeral, I conducted the funeral of one of my friend's fathers out in Fremont, Richard Foley. And at the end of the service, there was this ceremony after the, 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 the rite had ended where his granddaughter, who was only a couple years old, had collected a caterpillar before he died. And that caterpillar she'd put in a jar and it had made a chrysalis. You know what a chrysalis is? It's that cocoon thing that goes outside of the caterpillar. And by the time he died, the, the, the caterpillar had transformed. It had morphed from a caterpillar into a beautiful monarch butterfly. There were actually two of them. And so, before his death, she had captured this thing. And at the end of the funeral, she released these butterflies into the sky. It was a powerful image of metamorphosis, a powerful image of transfiguration, of something changed from one thing into another. That's what St. Paul's talking about here. The renewal of our minds, which then yields other things. To be full of grace, he says in verse 3. To be full of the merciful kindness of God. To not think more highly of oneself than one ought to. To not think more highly of oneself than one ought to. What is that? It's the spirit, it's the Christian virtue of humility, right? Being humble. To think with sober judgment, St. Paul says. To be able to discern right doctrine. To be disimpassioned. To weigh everything with good and sober judgment. Those are marks of a renewed Christian mind. Those are things that, that should, God should be doing in you and in me. And then he goes on to talk about how in that renewal, we can then give our gifts to the church, give our gifts of service to God, working as one body with many different talents and members. In today's readings, we see Jeremiah and Jesus and Peter. We see intercession for Israel. In today's passages, we see that prayers cannot be answered without God's intervention and love and sacrifice. We also see spiritual ignorance. We see what we're not to be. We see that God's answer is always above our answer and his ways above our own. For God's answer was not a new Moses. It wasn't another prophet. It wasn't another intercessor, although he is our intercessor. It was our sacrifice. Christ 
Our Passover has been sacrificed for us. Therefore, we keep the feast. As we go through each day, Jesus asks us, with His grace, to pick up our cross and follow Him, to let our minds be transformed by grace and with humility and sober judgment, so that we can be useful to Him and His kingdom and bring Him glory, which is the highest calling of all. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? Do you see how it all ties together? As we go forward this week, I want to challenge you and myself to see and ask yourself, where is this renewal? Where is this metamorphosis going on in you, in your mind? Where do you see God's grace on display in yourself and in what you show to others? Are you full of his merciful kindness? If not, why not? You have it. Are you allowing it to penetrate? Are you allowing it to be deep in your heart and spill out over into the world? Secondly, are you thinking more highly of yourself than you ought to? Well, that's a, high, that's a hard one, isn't it? Most of us think more highly of ourselves than we ought to. Do you have the humility... The assurance that you have Christ, but the humility to know that he has the answers, not you. And number three, are you thinking with sober judgment? Are you of sound and right mind, rightly discerning the truth, disimpassioned, weighing and discerning things, knowing the will of God? Let's ask ourselves those three things as we go forward this week. And ask the Holy Spirit to pour God's grace into us where we're lacking. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.